1: Hi everyone and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate podcast. I'm your co-host Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Joining us today on the show, Brandon Hall. Brandon, thanks for joining us today. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks a lot for having me.
1: Yeah, nice to have you on the show. Here's a little bit about Brandon. Brandon is a certified public accountant, national speaker, and the founder and CEO of the Real Estate CPA. Brandon also invests in multifamily properties personally and through his capital group, which is Naked Capital. With that being said, Brandon, can you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I am CEO of the Real Estate CPA, which is a virtual accounting firm. Uh, we, Since we are the Real Estate CPA, we only work with real estate investors and business owners that are in the real estate industry. So we have 11 employees across the United States. We're 100% virtual. We have a client in every state at this point. we um, work with a few hundred clients, all from the small mom-and-pop shops with one rental property all the way up to the largest, I think our largest client's $100 million real estate fund. Uh, we provide all sorts of fund services like tax prep, tax strategy, uh, CFO outsourced accounting, that type of thing. Um, So yeah, so I I pretty much pour all of my time into running that business and managing that. Managing employees takes a lot of time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a lot of energy. Uh, But on the side, whenever I do have a spare minute, uh, we are pouring money into real estate. So I have a few multifamily properties on my own. And then I also have, I'm I'm a partner in a a capital group called Naked Capital. And uh, we basically syndicate. So we raise money for people that are syndicating deals, and then we'll place the capital in those deals.
3: Nice, awesome, thank you for that. Well, since the real estate CPA invests in real estate, my first question is is maybe a little obvious, but I'd still wanna go there. Um, is real estate an asset class that is beneficial to investors from a tax perspective, and why? Yeah, so in my opinion,
2: obviously, it's the best asset class <laughs> for, <laughs> for anybody to be investing in. Um, the The beautiful thing about real estate is that you can build tax free wealth uh, you, you can you can take money you can you can leverage that money, uh, and then the income that you 're receiving currently is all tax free and it 's not technically tax free it 's technically tax deferred but we 'll just call it tax free for your listeners for the time being. So if I, let's say that I have $50,000 and I want to buy a rental property. Now I can probably buy a $200,000 rental property with that $50,000. So I'll buy a $200,000 rental property thanks to financing. Um, so that's what I'm talking about, the leverage aspect there. So my 50K gets, gets me a levered asset worth 200K. That $200,000 asset is then going to produce rental income for me. Um, let's call it two thousand bucks a month, or twenty four thousand dollars a year after my expenses. Like the, the tenant's going to pay for all the expenses on the property, including the mortgage. Um, so they're going to pay down my mortgage for me. But then I have cash flow. My, my cash flow on on a two hundred thousand dollar house might be like six, seven, eight hundred dollars a month, some, somewhere in that range. But I don't have to pay taxes on that six, seven, eight hundred dollars $800 a month. And the reason that I don't have to pay taxes on that is thanks to depreciation. So I get to depreciate my $200,000 house every single year over 27 and a half years. Uh, and depreciation is an expense that I get to take without actually having to pay any additional money. I think on a $200,000 house, depreciation works out to about like 6500 bucks a year. So I get a $6,500 write-off uh, for free. And and I, I get that right off because I purchased the property at the beginning, uh, and and now we're just kind of tracking the deterioration of the property over time. So it's a free expense that I get to take on my returns. I don't have to fork out any additional money to take that free expense. So if if we work out the example here, my two hundred thousand dollar property. Let's say that my net income, net income is different from cash flow. We're not going to get. I don't, I don't know if we'll get into that, but let's just say that my net my net income is $6,500. And then I have depreciation of $6,500. My net taxable income is $0. So I get $6,500 tax free. If I can do that 10 times, now I've got $65,000 tax free. And that is why real estate is the best asset class for, in my opinion, anybody to park money and build really phenomenal wealth and not pay taxes on it. it. Sounds like free money to me. It is free money. And then you get into all the other sexy stuff like 1031 exchanges, opportunity funds, which I'm sure we'll touch on.
3: Right. So that's very high level stuff. I mean, when you really get down into it, there's a lot more to get into. So that's another reason why I love real estate. So what's the first thing you should do from a tax planning standpoint when you decide you want to invest in real estate? Yeah, so th- that, that's a good question. The very first thing that
2: I would recommend that a new investor do is understand what a business expense is. A business expense is one that is ordinary and necessary. There's, there's two components there. Um, mortgage interest, for example, is both ordinary because all the landlords have it and it's necessary to buy the rental property. A $500 meal might be ordinary because meals are ordinary business expenses, but a $500 meal is not necessary, right? So there's the component of ordinary and necessary. Um, So once you can wrap your mind around that, the idea is just track all of your expenses that are business expenses. And this is super boring tax advice, (laughs) but this is where we start with everybody. If we, like I as a CPA, cannot help you as a new landlord, if you are not tracking all of your business expenses. So what our clients will do is they'll look at schedule E IRS schedule E and they'll like build a little, a little spreadsheet um, that that has all of those expense categories. And then what they'll do is they'll create another category called ask my accountant. And that's like literally the best tax advice for new landlords is to just track all of your expenses. And even if you're unsure, have a category called ask my accountant that you can, you can ask us at the end of the year.
3: Awesome, great advice. The tax laws have changed pretty dramatically over the last two years. Can you talk about those changes and how they benefit real estate investors? And then, are there any that are a negative towards investors?
2: Sure. So there's two two good ones and one potential negative one, depending on your size. So the two good ones are the 20% pass through deduction. Uh, there was actually guidance released on one one eighteen twenty nineteen. So yesterday. Um, which we have not totally thumbed through yet. But basically, rental properties will qualify as a trader business. Uh, I think as long as you spend at least 250 hours doing services, which they define, and there's a whole bunch of things there. Um, but if you qualify as a trader business, then the net income that your rentals produce will qualify for a free 20% deduction before it's taxed. So if I have net income after my depreciation, of ten thousand dollars my net taxable income is ten thousand bucks i now get a free two thousand dollar deduction on top of everything else simply because the tax loss changed so that's something to make yourself aware of understand how that affects your portfolio a lot of our clients they show passive losses every single year so they would have like maybe ten thousand dollars of net operating income but then their depreciation would be twelve thousand dollars so their net taxable income is negative two thousand dollars if you have negative income, then the 20% deduction doesn't do anything for you because your, your income is negative. Um, so it's only if you have positive income after everything's said and done. That's that's a good big one for all landlords. Another one, the second one is 100% bonus depreciation. So anytime that you buy a property, you can do something called a cost segregation study. And that study, what, what they do is they identify components of the property well they, they identify all components of the property. So they'll identify personal property, land improvements, structural components, and they'll assign a value to them. That, that's what a cost segregation study does. But when you get the results, of the cost segregation study, they're going to list the property out and also list out the useful life of the useful lives of that property. So personal property will have a five- year life, land improvements will have a 15 year life. Structural components will have a 27 and a half year life. Now, where this gets interesting is with 100% bonus depreciation, thanks to 2018 tax law changes, um, you can 100% expense any component of a property with a useful life of less than 20 years. So most of the cost segregation studies that we have seen on like multifamily property typically result in about 30% of the purchase price being allocated to components that have a useful life of less than 20 years, which means that if you're a new landlord and you buy a large enough property, you can have a cost segregation study performed and probably write off right around 30% of the basis immediately in the first year. So, like, we're seeing a lot of syndicators, for instance, these guys that buy the big apartment buildings and then raise a lot of capital to close on the apartment buildings. We're seeing these guys buy these multi-million-dollar apartment buildings and also get multi-million-dollar tax write-offs in the first year because they do a cost segregation study and are and are able to allocate um, components of the property to that 100% bonus depreciation. Now as small landlords, you can also use this. It just, it just, uh, you're not, you're not gonna be able to make a cost segregation study like feasible. Like I wouldn't do that on a $200,000 property, but any sort of repairs or improvements that I make, like if I do, if I, if I plant a new tree, for instance, right? Like let's say that I redo the landscaping, all that is land improvements. So that's a 15 year life meaning that all of my landscaping, I can use 100% bonus depreciation on. I don't have to depreciate it over a number of years. I can take it all now. Um, So it's not necessarily, we're not classifying it as a repair. We're just using 100% bonus depreciation to write everything off immediately. So small landlords can still use this. You just have to kind of pay attention to the types of improvements that you're doing. And uh and what that useful life is. Okay.
3: So real quick on the bonus depreciation, is there sure. there is a time frame for when that expires? Is that correct? Um, what do you mean? I think that the bonus depreciation is only up until 2023, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. Or okay yeah. Okay. So that means invest now. Yeah, 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 <laughs>
2: absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of these tax provisions, they do expire or, or they start to phase out. So anything that and, it, it, and your CPA might identify something that is something you should take advantage of. It's a lot of these are take advantage of them, of them now and over the next couple of years, because you won't be able to in the future. Okay. Got now, it. So my personal opinion is that, you know, the Republicans, uh, regardless of your political philosophy here, the Republicans really set the Democrats up <laughs> for for their reelection because uh, parties historically, whenever there's, whenever you raise taxes, it hurts your, your party. And the, the Republicans just perfectly structured a lot of these tax provisions to expire in that eight year time frame when the Democrats would be coming up. So I don't know, I would imagine that a lot of this would get extended. Um, and that there would be sunset clauses that wouldn't necessarily phase it out immediately. So we'll just kind of wait and see. But yes, conservatively, You should should jump on this stuff now. Okay, perfect. And the negative? So the negative is the business interest limitations. Uh, And this is going to apply to larger uh, real estate investors, not going to apply to the smaller landlords, but it's important for smaller landlords to understand this. And it's important to understand this, especially if you are investing in a syndication as a passive limited partner. So the business interest limitations, what it does... Or what it's doing is it's limiting the interest that you can take as a business. So for real estate, that's huge because mortgage interest is business interest. And that's, the, that's typically one of the largest write-offs that these syndicators have or that any landlord has. Um, so the problem is there's a $25 million gross revenue exception. So if you don't, if you don't hit $25 million, you don't have anything to worry about with the exception. There's an exception to the exception. With the exception of syndicators. So if you share your losses, if you split your losses in excess, if more, if more than 35% of the losses of your entity, your rental property go to limited partners, then you have a tax shelter and you are automatically subject to the business interest limitations. That's pretty much every syndicate that I know of. So, the syndicates are going to have to be aware of this and have a tax plan on how to manage the business interest limitations because what's happening is you're going to be limited to taking 30% of your EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's basically your net operating income. So, if you have $100,000 gross revenue and $50,000 of operating expenses, not including interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, then you have $50,000 of net operating income, then you're only allowed to take 30% of that, which is $15,000 of mortgage interest. So if you have like $80,000 of mortgage interest, you can't take all of it. You can only take $15,000. So we want to be working with syndicates here to understand how to get around the business interest limitations, how to set ourselves up for success because we are going to be classified as a tax shelter in years that we split the losses more than 35% with limited partners. Um, so it's something to really kind of keep an eye on. Luckily, uh, we can take a cost seg study in year one, and then we can elect out of the business interest lim- the business interest limitations in year two. That's getting into the weeds. So there are solutions, but it's something to be aware of and something that a lot of these syndicates need to know. It's also something that a lot of the limited partners, like I said earlier, they need to know about as well. One of the things that we encourage our the the clients that we work with that are accredited investors. We encourage them to ask their deal sponsors, how do you plan to manage the, the business interest limitation rules? If they don't know, it could be telling that they don't have a good team in place. So it's just something to be asking anybody before you invest with them.
3: Great. And so should investors be taking into consideration the tax benefits uh, when calculating their returns, or is that more like gravy on top? Yeah.
2: You know, it it is something that I, that I often see missed. Um, me personally, I do take into account the after tax return. Uh, I think that that's important because that allows you to compare the after tax return from real estate to the after tax return from everywhere else. Uh, real estate's generally going to give you a better after tax return because those passive losses. Like like if we go back to the example I gave way earlier, we have a $10,000 net income, $12,000 in depreciation, a $2,000 passive loss. That means that I've got $10,000 tax-free and I have a $2,000 passive loss that can potentially reduce my taxes and, and give me tax savings, which also gets added to my return technically. Now, that's a little bit harder to dive into for a lot of people. So I don't see a lot of people... Looking at their after-tax returns, but I think that if they did, they would realize that a lot of this is a no-brainer.
3: Got it. Okay. And who's who's really responsible for making sure all these things are accounted for? There's so many different things to take into consideration when you're tax planning. I mean, is it the syndicators? Is it your CPA? Is it the actual <laughs> investor themselves? Yeah. So it's it's you. Technically, everything falls on
2: you. Even if even if even if somebody came to me and wanted their tax return done. I get to say I prepared the tax return based on the information that you gave me, so it's still on you. Now we work with our clients proactively to help them navigate this stuff because it's a lot and it's crazy, and we understand it. Uh, but yeah, it's always you. So you know, you talked about the syndicates. Like we we have a we have a list of questions that we want our limited partners, our accredited investors, to be asking syndicates before they invest in any deal with them to gauge what does your team look like. How much of this have you planned for? Um, we have a we have a big knowledge base. We have we put we push out a lot of content for our clients to read because we're not going to be able to catch everything as CPAs. There's way too much going on. We talk to our clients a handful of times throughout the year, uh, so we have to make sure that our clients are somewhat educated and can bring us details that we can then ask more questions about to sift through it. But yeah, it, it definitely all it. You as the taxpayer, you shoulder the brunt of all of this.
3: Got it. Okay, and you already mentioned one red flag, but what are some red flags that uh, passive investors should be looking into uh, when investing in with a deal sponsor? Yeah, I, I think that from a tax perspective. Sorry.
2: Yeah, from a tax perspective. So I think that if a deal sponsor cannot talk adequately about a cost segregation study or the business interest limitations. It doesn't necessarily mean that the deal sponsor is bad or doesn't know what he's talking about or she doesn't know what he's, what, know, know what she's talking about. But what it does mean is that they haven't thought, thoroughly thought through their, total, their, their tax plan. And for you as a limited partner, that could be detrimental. Uh, you don't want to get into a deal and then figure out that they're not actually going to try to maximize anything that's being passed back to you. Um, You also want to be able to understand, I mean, even investing in these syndicates, you can have a very strategic plan investing in in different syndicates. Like you could have invested in a syndicate and let's say January, 2019, they call you up and they say, Hey, we were selling the property early, uh, which is great. It's going to be a big return. You're going to get it paid out. But now that means that you have a big tax burden. So how do you offset that tax burden? You can invest in another syndicate later on this year. And if they run a cost segregation study, they'll push out a lot of passive losses to you. But you need to be asking about that cost seg study. You need to be asking about the business interest limitations. And if they don't know, then that's telling. And it's, again, not necessarily that they're a bad, that it's a bad deal, that they're a bad sponsor. But the questions that you would then be wondering about is, does this person have a team in place? Has this person done cost segs before? Do they know how to maximize returns for investors or minimize my my tax liability as a result of this deal. Um, and for for us, honestly, it's really just it's really just telling about the team, the, the operating team in place. A lot of these syndicates, what they'll do is they'll get a CPA and they'll say, I have a CPA on my team, but really what they mean is I have a tax preparer on my team. I talk to them once a year in March to get UK ones. And that's not adequate enough for syndicates. They need to, to have the CPA uh, during due diligence, helping coach them through all of this stuff. And so if if there are syndicates out there that can answer you, that can rattle it off, tell you all about seg, all about the business interest limitation plans, and there's a lot that can't. And we want our clients to be investing with the ones that know what they're talking about.
3: Great. Awesome. So what are the three biggest mistakes you see investors making on their taxes when they're investing in real estate? Yeah, so three biggest mistakes. The first one,
2: we're going to, talk to, we're going to talk a lot about being like self-prepared here. So we have a lot of, of folks that, that express interest in our services, and, and, and in the past, they've just done a lot of self-preparing. Um, the three biggest mistakes, the first biggest mistake that we see is not taking any depreciation at all. Uh, we're actually dealing with one right now. A guy didn't want to take any depreciation. He's now selling the property and he's like, well, I didn't take any depreciation, so I don't have depreciation recapture, which is a tax that you have to pay on any depreciation that you've taken whenever you sell a property. The problem with that is that the IRS doesn't care if you took depreciation because there's a little clause there that says the depreciation that you have taken or could have taken, that's what we're going to tax whenever Mm -hmm. you sell the property. Wow. A lot of people think that, well, if I don't record depreciation, I'm good. Doesn't work like that. You're going to sell the property and you're still going to pay tax as if you had taken depreciation. So that's mistake numero uno that we all the time see. It's also the best mistake for us to catch because we can go back and amend returns and get a big refund for the client, right? So it's a good, (laughs) if you're going to make a mistake, that's the best one to make. (laughs) Got it. Uh, That's the one we see most often. Uh, Mistake number two has to deal with building basis and land basis. So if, if you were smart enough to say, I'm going to depreciate the property, mistake number two would be depreciating the entire purchase price, right? So when I buy my $200,000 property that I mentioned earlier, I don't get to take depreciation on $200,000 because when I bought the property, I also bought the land and land cannot be depreciated. Um, so... I might be depreciating like $160,000, the building basis, because
3: I allocate $40,000 to land. Got it. And if there's anyone out there asking, you know, how do you do these cost segregation studies? There are companies out there that you hire to do these for you, um, which will basically um, let you know, you know, what you can and can't depreciate and and what you're going to get back. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's tons of cost seg study companies
2: out there. Uh, You have to be careful because a lot of these small ones, they, you know, they've got people that have been, I don't know, um, a delivery guy for a decade. And then he says, oh, there's an opportunity of selling people cost segregation studies. I'm going to go do that. The problem with cost segregation studies is that there's no licensing requirements. So anybody can become a cost seg professional. <laughs> so make, make sure that you vet them, make sure that you vet the company uh, before you engage because these are expensive and um, you want to make sure that you can substantiate the valuation breakout. But talking about mistake number two there, anybody can figure out the valuation of their building and the valuation of their land. So what we recommend that you do is just whenever you buy a property go to that county's property assessor database and pull the property tax card. And what that will show you is how the county or the city or the locality values the building and the land. And then what you do is you just take a percentage. So on my 200K example, um, let's say that the county thinks that the building is valued at $80,000 and actually, let's make it easy. Let's say the building is valued at $90,000 and the land is valued at $10,000. So the county has provided a 90-10 split, a 90% to building, 10% to land. If I apply that to my $200,000 purchase price, I will get a uh, $160,000 no, 180000 um, hundred eighty thousand dollar building value and a twenty thousand dollar land value. So I just I can take that average, that weighted average, um, or that ratio that the county county assessor provides and apply it to my purchase price to get my breakout. If I want to break out the hundred eighty k of building value further and assign value to all the components that make up that hundred eighty k, that's when I get a cost segregation study.
3: Got it. Got it. Okay. And then uh, going back, you have a third one on um, biggest mistakes? Yeah. So biggest mistake number three is people just thinking that they have
2: to have an LLC to deduct business expenses. Uh, we've we've seen a lot of people not track business expenses in their first year or two because they think that they have to have an LLC to, to deduct business expenses. But remember, In order for a business expense to be deductible, it has to be ordinary and necessary. Says nothing about having an entity in place, just has to be ordinary and necessary.
3: Okay, great. And um, so, a lot of people out there, their accountants or CPAs are not real estate professionals or in the real estate field. What's the biggest difference that a real estate focused CPA can give you if you're investing in real estate versus, you know, just your average accountant that you go to, like you said, once a year, every March. Yeah. So if, if, if you're listening to this podcast
2: and you're thinking I have to rewind that section about the cost seg, the business interest limitations, Mm -hmm. all that stuff, that's where we come in. (laughs) So that that's just scratching the surface of all of the tax code related to real estate investing. Real estate investing is super complex. It's nowhere near as easy as just, you know, being the H&R block and churning out W-2 tax returns. It's, it is complex. There's a lot of representations that you have to be aware of um, in order to prepare a compliant tax return. There's also a ton of tax strategies. And that's often where we see a lot of CPAs miss the beat. So a lot of CPAs can take your return and they can prepare an okay rental, like a Schedule E. Like we'll see some mistakes. We'll see some valuation mistakes, like allocating to building and land. We'll see some depreciation mistakes. Uh, we'll see some. We've seen CPAs not record like insurance and taxes in the year that people purchase properties because they didn't go and look at the closing documents and see that insurance and taxes were paid as part of closing. So there's those types of mistakes that a non real estate CPA is more likely to make. But other than that, like they can, they could probably do a decent job preparing a rental uh, or preparing a regular schedule E it's when you get a lot of rental properties um, or it's when you start talking tax strategy that their value significantly declines. And that's where the value of somebody that's niched in the space, that's where their value becomes much more valuable to you because I mean, for us, you know we 've got if somebody joined our firm today, I get to tell them hey we 've got three hundred and fifty case studies of people that are similar to you that we've already we 've already made all the mistakes on <laughs> so you're coming in you're coming in, you get to benefit from all of that, and we know exactly what to do right off the bat and a lot of people they when they come into our pipeline and they want to potentially be a client of ours we'll ask them why you're looking to switch cPAs and they're just like honestly. Um, you know, I, I, took one of your podcasts or I took one a piece of your content. I sent in my CPA and he had no idea what you're talking about. And I just feel like I'm not getting the maximization over there that I need in order to, to really benefit from the tax position. Uh, and, and that's what we, what we often see. And, and there's nothing wrong with those CPAs. They're doing a good job. You're, you're typically paying. A lot of people don't understand that when they pay for taxes, they're paying for tax compliance. They're not paying for strategy. So tax compliance is I'm going to take your data. Remember, it's your responsibility. I'm going to take your data and I'm going to put it into the return in a manner that is compliant with the IRS. It's an extremely valuable service because if you're not compliant, then there's a lot of trouble. But a lot of clients think that, well, they're not doing everything they could be doing. So what we do is we say we know that they're not doing everything they could be doing. You're also not paying them for that. Here's what it looks like for us. (laughs) And we're going to be able to help you out a lot because there's a lot that we can do here. You haven't, you haven't gone through it yet. So, so yeah, so the niche, the niche part, um, if you, if you, and this goes for anybody in any niche, right? Like I wouldn't want to take on a brewery client. If you're going to go start a craft brewer, I'd be like, Hey, I actually have a guy that I know that that's all he works with. And he's going to know that segment inside and out. Same thing with real estate. If you're going to get into this space heavily, uh, you want to work with somebody that knows it inside and out, because that's only what their clients are doing.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, I like how you say tax strategy. Um, it, it's definitely worth it. And I think a lot of people think about it from, you know, what am I saving on the front end paying my accountant, but really, you don't account for all the stuff you're losing on the back end. And really having a tax strategy that, you know, is planned out one, three, five years in ahead is going to be worth it in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions.
1: All right. Well, in wrapping things up, Raina, I'm going to ask you our final four questions. Uh, Feel free to either answer them from your uh, personal investments or from a CPA standpoint. All right? Oh, cool. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. All right. So what is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without?
2: All right. I'm going to take this. From the CPA perspective, actually, we can kind of talk on both angles. So I use Slack all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that that's probably everybody listening to this is like, yeah, we use Slack too. But trust me, for a CPA firm to be using Slack, it's like mind blowing. <laughs> we, we we have closed clients because they've talked to multiple CPA firms and we're, we mentioned Slack and they're like, oh, we use Slack too. That's so cool. <laughs> we're going to use you guys. Um, so yeah, so we use Slack all day, every day. We also put our, some of our clients on Slack as well. Uh, so I guess we we can kind of hit the real estate side there.
1: <laughs> awesome. Uh, can you tell us your story about um, the biggest mistake in real estate investing so far? And what is a main takeaway for our listeners?
2: Sure. So the biggest mistake that I had was back in 2016. Uh, I had moved into a three-unit property. And I rented out the other two units, so I was doing like the house hacking. If you if you are privy to the bigger pockets conversation, there, Um, I would. This is my second property. The first property I had a property manager managing everything. It was down in North Carolina. This property that I moved into was in Baltimore, Maryland. And I figured since I was moving into it, I could manage the property myself. Like that'd be that'd be easy, right? I'm a I'm, my wife will tell you that i 'm not a handy guy I think i 'm a handy guy, <laughs> and I know how to collect rents, right so <laughs> I can manage the property. Um, the problem is is that i as as much as as much of a logical guy i am i 'm also you know i, I don 't like to stir the pot too much, so the the person living on my in my second unit on top of me would never uh, never pay on time. And I would just send her incessant reminders and she she would always pay, but it would never be on time. And, uh, and anyway, and then one day she just like moved out. It was at the end of her lease, but she didn't give any give me any notice, just left. Uh, so my biggest mistake was not realizing that I'm not good at property management. That Because <laughs> the problem was I was stressed out the entire time. <laughs> so even though I knew she was gonna pay, I was still stressed and it was affecting everything else. So my my learning there was, offload what you're not good at somebody else. And if you're like me and you get like a little bit of a soft spot for people and you don't want to stir the pot too much, definitely offload the hard stuff, (laughs) stuff that makes that, you know, I'm going to pound on your door until you pay me type of thing. You should not be doing that type of work.
1: (laughs) All right. Noted. (laughs) Um, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level?
2: Gosh, I don't know, uh, man, what do I need to do to grow my life to the next level? I think that I need to, I need to get healthier. I need to work out more. And, uh, every time I work out, it clears my mind and helps me kind of plan for the future. Um, but yeah, just really need to double down on the business. I mean, we, we started this in 2016, we've grown it to over a million dollars in revenue, 11 employees in three short years. Um, and I, I want to see how far we can take this thing and, and how much more value that we can add to, to the real estate industry as a whole. So doubling down on that getting really good at marketing, I, I tell my team, we want to be a marketing agency first and a CPA firm second. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: We can figure out marketing. We're going to be able to help a lot more people, uh, figure out their, their real estate situations.
1: Yeah. And lastly, where can people find out more about you?
2: Sure. So you can go to our website, therealestatecpa.com. Uh, we have a knowledge base there. We have a blog, a podcast, a YouTube channel. You can find all of that on the realestatecpa.com. We also have virtual workshops, which are really cool. Um, me or one of the other tax strategists will be in a room of like 10 investors and you guys pepper us with questions. A lot of fun. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. I like to post tax tips and ideas. And I also like to post about how the other big CPA firms are they stink (laughs) Uh, so if you're you're into any of that you can you can follow me on LinkedIn I'm happy to connect there as well
1: wow wonderful so super informative episode with plenty of tips and advice um, on tax planning and strategizing that I'm positive all of our listeners could benefit from so uh, with that being said thank you everyone for spending some time with us Brandon I really enjoyed our conversation thanks for being on the show
3: thanks for having me thanks Brandon
0: thanks for listening To learn more about the Passive Income through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.